I'd like for you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 7. A continuation of the series on the kind of person that God uh, makes, God shapes. We talked about uh, how He shapes us, how He makes us, those uh, implements that He uses and the kind of person that goes into the making, uh, uh, into the person that God makes. And all of it is, is in this um, book of 2 Timothy. Now let me remind you of what uh, the context here. Ta- uh, Paul is in prison and he knows that he'll not get out of there alive. And he's unloading his apostleship on the shoulders of a young man who's probably about 17 years of age. And he's timid and frightened, naturally. And the Apostle Paul is giving him these last instructions concerning what God wants of him and what God expects of him and what's involved in, in this, um, this discipleship. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he, he writes... You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardness with me, hardship with me, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. When no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The message of redemption is based on two essential factors, two important factors, and they run, and it runs on two tracks, each one is important as the other. The first is that Christ died on the cross for our sins and He purchased our redemption by His death and resurrection so that He accomplished for us redemption in that He paid the penalty for our sin. But the proclamation of that message is equally important For there can be no salvation apart from the proclamation of the message of salvation. God cannot accomplish the method of redemption apart from the message of it. Uh, A person could find a cure for AIDS, but it would be of no value if he didn't tell anybody. And a man could be on death row and receive a pardon from the governor but it would be of no value if nobody knew about it. And so running on the same track as 
the penalty Jesus paid for our sin in importance is that there be the proclamation of this or the sharing of this message. Now what God did in Christ is finished. All that was necessary for our redemption has been completed. When Jesus prayed it is, or cried, it is finished, He meant that all of the demands necessary for our redemption was met at Calvary. So now God is trying, God is in the, in the uh, work, in the process of trying to raise up people that are most effective to share that message. It's of equal importance. And so God is in the business of, of, of shaping men and women who can most effectively get that message to the world. And that's what he's saying in verses 3 through 6. And he uses three metaphors to describe that. That of a soldier, he knew something about them because he spent most of his time in jail, chained to one. When he got to town, I have a feeling he'd inquire about the Holiday Inn, if it was, uh, you know, if it had TV or, you know, anything like that. I think what he did when he got to town is ask about the local jail because he was going to spend most of the time there. He knew something about an athlete. He had seen that culture that glorifies athletes, and he talks about a farmer. He uses these three metaphors in the text. Now, why he picks up on these three, I don't really know what to tell you there. I know there are some common denominators in each one of them. I mean, in all three, there is this effort, work, diligence, sweat, toil. There's nothing glamorous about any of them, or maybe an athlete some glamour there, especially if he wins the race, but the common element in all of them is that there is sweat and toil and labor and diligence and, and, a, and suffering and a price to pay. And while there are many instructions in each one of these metaphors, there is one essential truth, one primary truth in each one of them. And if we can find that primary truth in each one of the metaphors, that becomes the profile of a man God can most effectively use in the proclamation of the message. What does this guy look like that God wants to use in, 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 pro, in proclaiming and getting the message out? And they are so important. And what does he look like? Well, he's described in these three metaphors. The first I call the ambition of a servant. The ambition of a servant. Now you don't have to get too far into the scriptures until you discover that, that what the Christian life is about is a spiritual warfare. I mean, we're, we're in warfare. And the, and the New Testament describes the Christian as a soldier over and over again and pictures the church as the military. Now, how like that are we today? I tell you, we are so unlike that, it's incredible. There's not a single one of you this morning that would think of yourself in terms, in, in relationship to your discipleship as a soldier would. And, and, and this, uh, as somebody calls the church, this great ship of Zion is really not a it's really not a battleship, it's a, it's a pleasure cruiser. I mean, we don't think of ourselves in terms like that. Eldon Trueblood decries the fact that we are so far from that. In his little book, The Company of the Committee, this is how he puts it. 
We go and come as we like, as no soldier can do. We give or withhold giving as we like. We serve when we get around to it. Obedience is considered an irrelevant notion, and the theme, onward Christian soldiers, is so alien to our experience that some churches avoid it, the hymn entirely. The military metaphor seems strained when it is applied to smartly dressed men and women riding in air-conditioned cars to air-conditioned churches. While soldiers are specifically under authority and may consequently be sent anywhere without the right of refusal, most people would smile at the idea of the church sending them on a mission which they could not refuse. He was not advising people to go to church or even to attend the synagogue when he called them. He was instead asking for recruits in a company of danger. He was asking not primarily for belief, but for commitment with a consequent involvement. Now whether you know it or not, you lost the authority of your life when you committed your life to Jesus Christ. You were enlisted in the service. And that word enlisted there is an interesting word. It means to draw a circle around and put his hand on so that he, he, put his, he drew a circle around your life and he put his hand on you and he says in essence, you belong to me. Now he says that every soldier strives not to entangle himself in the world, the affairs of the world. Now he didn't say that a, that a Christian was not to be involved in world's, the world's affairs. There's a big difference between being entangled and being involved. He's saying that the Christian is to hold on to the world with a loose grip. Now why would you think he'd go through all this trouble giving us this, the description of this soldier and, and, and laying that on us. Well, he tells us in the next verse, he says, so that we may please him who enlisted us. And that is the first important lesson. That's the primary, the first primary factor that the, that the essential ingredient of the person God most effectively uses is his desire to please God. That's the overwhelming desire of his life. Every other desire bows to that desire. Now there's something terribly freeing when a person aligns himself up with that one great essential motivation, to please him. First of all, there's an uncomplaining sacrifice. People who desire to please the Lord don't complain when God lays burdens on them to do. It means an unhesitating obedience. I don't know much about the military. I never was in the Army. I didn't dodge the draft, but I did join the ROTC. I don't know much about the military, but I do know this about it. When the military commander says, jump, you jump. And when the command is made, you obey it. Can you imagine some Marine drill sergeant going into the barracks one morning and hollering, all right, everybody out, everybody hit the deck, and somebody rolling over and saying, leave me alone, I hit the snooze button, I'll, I'll be up in a minute. I mean, there's unhesitating obedience. Now, there's a great deal of talk this day and time about what uh, this book that Henry Blackaby's written, and some of you have been to prayer meeting, and we've been studying it, and and Henry Blackaby has this theme that he has communicated so effectively it's caught the Christian 
the Christian community by storm. Everywhere you read, you read some reference to it. Everybody talking about it. Let me tell you the secret, the germ that's in that book and in that theme that he so effectively communicates called experiencing God. The, the essential element of that is unhesitating obedience so that a man who wants to experience God must come to the place where he obeys God without reference, without question, without hesitation unhesitating obedience. And so God lifted up Philip and sent him out to Gaza. And while he was out there in the middle of the desert, he saw this chariot go by and a black man reading in the book of, Hose uh, book of Isaiah, an official in the queen's court. And God said to Philip, join yourself to that chariot. I can hear his excuses. He could have made all kinds of excuses. I don't know this man. I'll take a little while to cultivate his friendship. He didn't say that. This man's reading. I don't want to disturb him. He's of another culture. I, don't, I, don't even, I can't even relate to him. The scripture says that he ran and joined himself to the chariot because it was, it was essential that he obey immediately or the chariot was gone. And the scripture says that God called Abraham and he went out not knowing where he went. And the Greek construction there is that while God was calling, Abraham was going. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is this. Now, Timothy, let me, tell you, let me give you some good advice. If you're going to be used of God, the desire to please Him must come before every other desire. And there's a tremendous freedom in that, in that when, when you live with a desire to please Him, why do you care about the judgments of other people? I mean, why are you so intimidated by peers? If your desire is to please Him and that desire supersedes everything else, then it doesn't matter to you what other people's judgments are. In fact, this may be a good way to test where you are. Do you know, you know when a church begins to backslide? It's when that church no longer has, has its one desire to please the Lord. Do you know when you begin to slip away from God and your commitment to Him? When you begin to backslide, it's when you no longer have as your burning desire to please Him above everything else. The ambition of a servant. Second, there's the admonition of a servant. Now look at verse 5 with me. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now every athlete likes to win if he's worth his salt. I, uh, I was there the other night when... Ada eked out that win. And I saw our boys walk off. I mean, some of them were on the field with their heads down. Every, every athlete likes to win if he's worth his salt. Vince Lombardi said, winning's not everything. Winning's the only thing. Um, I heard a reporter interview Hostetler the other day. He's the guy that's just got bumped from his number one starting position as a quarterback of the New York Giants. And, Sims took his place, and some reporter 
uh, interviewed him the other day and asked him this real smart question. He said, do you think that was the right decision? He gets bumped, you know. And he looked at that reporter and said, that was a dumb question. I mean, of course he thought it was a wrong decision. I mean, anybody who, who is an athlete is an athlete to win. Now, I want to paraphrase Lombardi's statement. Winning is the only thing if it's by the rules. I read an article the other day about a guy who described how a pitcher, how pitchers in the big leagues get an advantage. And he said when they paw the ground there, get in a little place to put their feet on the, when they push off on the mound, he said they'll always dig a little trench about a half inch from the rubber. You know, your, fo your foot's supposed to be on the rubber when you release the ball from the mound. But he said every little bit, every little advantage helps. It's not winning, it's winning by the rules, which is everything. And who can forget Ben Johnson's dejected look when they stripped him of that world title and that Olympic medal, didn't play by the rules. And this week, the Philippine Islands were stripped of their uh, championship of the Little League World Series, they didn't play by the rules. So that an athlete wins if he plays by the rules. Now you say, well, now how does that relate to what we're talking about serving God? This is how it relates. Are you listening, please? God rejects everything you do for Him that's not according to the rules. Now, I can preach this sermon this morning. I have an idea that God is not listening to see if I got three points, have them illustrated and applied. What he is, it, he's looking in my heart. And some of you taught Sunday school this morning. I have bad news for you. If your not life is not according to the rules, God rejected all of it. Now you say, what is it to play by the rules as a Christian? Well, here it is. I'm going to give you the answer, then I'm going to illustrate it. The quality of my service is determined by the quality of my life. So that God looks at my heart and yours. It's amazing how many things we accept that God rejects. And I know that there are preachers who get in a pulpit, get in a pulpit uh, myself included, I'm sure that can execute a sermon as it ought to be executed hermeneutically. And yet somebody else step in the pulpit and say and preach and there's just something that comes across that's different. Because God honors the heart. And we can execute a, a lesson or we can execute a choir number and I have a strong belief that God doesn't listen to see if we're on key. But what he does is to see if our life is, measures up to the, to the demonstration or the presentation. He looks at the heart. And in that Old Testament economy, the high priest would get contaminated. If he got contaminated, he couldn't perform his function. 
If he touched a dead body, if he touched a diseased body, he became contaminated. He couldn't go back into the place of, of, of ministry and worship and service until he went through a period of purification. Now, why do you think that's true? Do you think if a priest touched a diseased body and became contaminated, that would, that would affect his ability or efficiency to do a sacrifice at an altar and sprinkle a little blood? Of course not. The answer to that is no. Well, why, did he, why was it that he became disqualified until he went through a period of purification? Let me tell you why. Listen to me. Because God doesn't look at the ability or the efficiency. He looks at the heart. And I'm going to say this with all of my heart and love, the love of my heart. You come in here on Sunday morning with a contaminated life and you present your worship to God and He rejects it. And we come into the sanctuary of the Lord on holy ground, nonchalantly and with blasé attitude, with a contaminated life because we've, been, we've held on to the world and we have attitudes and, and sin and habits, and God rejects it. Because the athlete wins who plays by the rules. Now, with your New Testament in hand, I want you to turn back one book to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I want to read, in verse, read verses 14 through 16. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of, hand, on, on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed with them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourselves, yourself, and for those who hear you. Now, he's not talking about salvation from sin. He's talking about wholeness and acceptance. This is what he's saying. Now, of course, Timothy is already saved. What he's saying is this. He's saying, before you become committed to seeing people whole and acceptable to God, you need to be sure that you are. And your first responsibility is to yourself. And when you take care and pay attention to who you are and you get that right, then you're able to, for God to use you to minister to others. The admonition of a servant. One last word, please. The anticipation of a servant. Now, I'm not, I don't know anything about uh, uh, military, but I certainly know something about farming. Uh, having been raised on a little farm out in West Texas, I, 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 I'm an authority on it. In fact, I made God a promise that if He'd get me off the farm, so I would never have to hold cotton or pick bowls again. I would never sin. I made him a promise. I'll never sin. I, <laughs> just get me out of here, and you can count on me to be sinless from now on. 
There are two factors that he emphasizes here. One is the labor that goes on and on. He says this, this farmer is a hard, the hard-working farmer, he calls it. Now, when you read that in the, in the Greek New Testament, he's not talking about the intensity of the labor. He's talking about the extent of it. And what he is saying is, is that this person that God most effectively uses is the person who stays at it and never quits. There's never been a year that I can remember as a kid when that heat, those hot, that hot wind started blowing over those little, those old cotton fields of West Texas. Every year I'd hear my father say, this is the last year. There's got to be a better way to make a living. He'd say, we're not going to make it. This is, this is, I'm going to get something else to do. And he'd talk about quitting. But he never did. Charles Hall explodes or blows up bombs for a living. He's a, he's a member of the EOD, that's the Explosion Ordnance Demolition, a government job, and he walks the beaches, walks the sand, sands of post-war Kuwait looking for live bombs and discarded grenades, and he blows them up, and he gets paid $1,500 a week, and he earns every penny of it. He's not unlike Timothy. The Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, Son, I'm going to unload on you this discipleship, and you're going to be walking in the minefields of a brutal world. And you're going to encounter persecution and suffering, and you're probably going to die as a result of it. I'm laying this on you because I want you to know you must pass on what you've received because it came to you on its way to someone else. And there'll be times when you'll want to quit, but I want you to know you've got to stay after it. Stay there. Not unlike us. I'm telling you right beneath the sands are the problems that exist in this world and there's not a single one of us who is exempt from any of them. My phone rang yesterday about seven times. My phone is somehow connected to my pillar, my pillow. Every time I lay my head on it, it rings. That's amazing. My phone rang about seven times yesterday. Five times it had to do with some sorrow that someone is experiencing or some tragedy that had come to some life in our church. We didn't invent alcohol, but... Our highways are crowded with drunk drivers. And we didn't make dope, but there are people in this town willing to sell it to your children. And we didn't, call we didn't cause international tension, and yet terrorists fill the skies. And we didn't cause people to be thieves, but there are hundreds of the like to make you victims of their greed. And while we walk through these treacherous paths, underneath, just beneath the surface or these explosive tragedies and sorrows of life. Wouldn't you like to quit? So would I. And Jesus got with his disciples and he said, 
I'm sending you out into this real world and it's brutal and cruel and they're going to wipe you out because they hate me. Then he said, but those who endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Those who don't quit, who don't give up, who stay after it day after day, they're the ones who will experience wholeness and acceptance. The Brazilians have a term for it. There's a Portuguese word that describes that person who hangs in there, stays after it and doesn't give up. It's the word gaha. It means claws, C-L-A-W-S, claws. And the person who has gaha digs his claws into the cliff and hangs on so that he doesn't fall. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is this, dig your claws into the rock of God and don't quit. And if you hang in there and go on and on and on, you'll, God will use you because he can't use a quitter. And I'm told that when they were filming the, the movie, Ben-Hur, I got it wrong this morning, somebody remind me. When they were filming the movie, Ben-Hur, Charlton Heston couldn't, couldn't learn to drive a chariot. I mean, he couldn't get it down. Moses couldn't, couldn't learn how to drive a chariot. But he kept working at it, and finally he went to the director, Cecil B. DeMille, and he said, I think I can drive it. I think I can drive it, but I don't think I can win the race. And Cecil B. DeMille said, you just stay in the race and I'll make sure you win. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is this, like a farmer, you just keep on doing it, you stay in there with an ambition to please the Lord and you claw yourself into the rock and you hang on and God will use you. Because here's the motivation. The motivation is, is that the farmer, did you see it in the verse? The farmer is the, receives the first of the crop. The first of the crop. Now who is the first blessed of the teacher? The teacher. The person who got the greatest blessing out of that class you taught this morning is you. I've heard some of you teach. I know that's probably, no I'm kidding, just a joke. The best, the best, the greatest blessing that came out of my class this morning came to the teacher. The person who is first blessed is the, is the person who serves. I'm not here to tell you that the people who are the most blessed in this church are the people who serve. Because the farmer receives the first fruit of the crop. And the motivation is not just that he'll receive the, the first share of the crop, but that there is a crop, there is a harvest. And I have a feeling that every time my father would hook up to that cotton trailer and head off down to the gin, I could just hear him saying to himself, this is not too bad. This is okay. I'm, I might do this again next year. Because when there is a bottom line and when there is a harvest, that motivates us to go on and on and on. And so Sir, Sir Ernest, Ernest Shackleton, on one of his expeditions to the Antarctic, 
left some of his men on Elephant Island. He was going to come back and get them, but he was detained. And by the time he got back, all the waterways around Elephant Island were frozen solid. There was no way to get them. And he sought, he tried three times to get through the ice to get his men, but couldn't. And finally, by some hook or crook or providence or miracle, he found a little waterway. The time was of the essence. He raced through that waterway to Elephant Island, found his men. The amazing thing is when he found them, they had their bags packed and their tents were down and their, their beds were rolled up and they were ready. When they made it down the waterway and out into the ocean to safety, he asked one of the men, he said, how'd you know I... How'd you know when I was coming? He said, we didn't. He said, well, when I got there, your tents were down and your bags were packed and your bedroll was rolled. You were waiting on me. He said, well, every morning when we get up, the officer would say to us, okay, gentlemen, roll your bags, roll your bedroll, pack your bags, take down your tents. The boss is coming today. We're going home today. I'm here to tell you this morning the boss is coming today. We're going home today. Take down your tents, roll up your bedroll, pack up your bags. The harvest is coming today. And a person who lives in that, that state of readiness and anticipation is the person God will use to change his high school and change his world. A soldier, an athlete, a farmer. Each one has a truth that describes the kind of man God uses. Let's pray. Our Father, make now this invitation that which would honor and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name.